There's going to be a huge party in the United Kingdom on Saturday. A party fit for a king. There will be crowns, more than one, with many jewels. There will be crimson robes and complicated outfit changes and orbs and golden carriages, two golden carriages. So there will be a lot of blank. Carla Adam is a London correspondent for The Post, and she's covering the coronation of King Charles this weekend. Charles immediately became king after his mother, Queen Elizabeth, died last year. Carla says even though this event is purely ceremonial, the country is still pulling out all of the stops. We will also have an orb and swords and a 12th century spoon. So all of this, you know, regalia and and you'll see all this pomp and pageantry that Britain is famous for is really the biggest show of all. And since the coronation is paid for by the government, all this glitz and glam has prompted some people to ask, why are taxpayers footing the bill? And just how wealthy is the British royal family anyway? That's a very hard question. I mean, the truth is we just don't know, like, how how rich is the king? And there's no public number for how rich he is. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, May 5th. Today, what we know about the royal family's wealth and how economic inequities in Britain are changing how the public feels about King Charles. Carla, for those of us who don't follow the royal family closely, can, can you just remind us what Charles is known for and where does he sit in the family tree? King Charles is the late Queen Elizabeth II's eldest son. Your Majesty, Mummy, <laughs> I have a feeling that uh, in 1948, when you were 22, you didn't somehow expect at the age, at your 92nd birthday, to find your son in his 70th year. His first marriage was to Princess Diana, who was a hugely, hugely popular figure. They had two children, Prince William and Prince Harry. They divorced in 1996 after marital difficulties, including Charles having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles, who is now his wife. They eventually married in 2005. There's been some controversy over what Camilla would be referred to when Charles became king. She was known as Queen Consort, but we are told that from Saturday going forwards, she will be known simply as Queen. And Charles is a very different character from his mom. It seems to me a self-evident truth that we cannot have any form of capitalism without capital. But uh, we must remember that the ultimate source of all economic capital is nature's capital. We know a lot about him. I mean, he has opinions on things. And if, you know, by contrast, if his mom had opinions on things, I'm sure she did, but we didn't know them. 
On the other hand, we know a lot about Charles's opinions. We know about his opinions on hedgerows uh, or on modern architecture or on climate change. We should compare the planet under threat of climate change to a sick patient. No doctor would wait for 100% certainty while a dying patient slipped away. We cannot ignore the symptoms and should act now to restore the health of the planet before it is too late. He also, he's, he's quite a stylish king, isn't he? I mean, some people have called him a clothes horse, but he wears very flashy suits. You'll sometimes see a silk handkerchief, which he really seems to like. He's a charitable entrepreneur. He's come up with his own brand of products. Uh, he came up with Dutchie Originals, which started out as a biscuit and has grown to a whole range of things that sold at a supermarket here called Waitrose. He's a fascinating man. King Charles is, he's liked. He's not as popular as his mother was. I mean, overall, the monarchy is popular. But if you look at it over sort of several years, certainly it's not as popular as it once was. And I think an interesting thing is that in almost all of the major events this year, you will have seen people protesting Charles. They're noisy, they're very visible. They hold up these yellow signs that say, Not my king. And they're not big in number. You know, it might be a couple dozen people at various events throughout this year, but they're certainly there in a way that they weren't for Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, their numbers will be dwarfed by the hundreds of thousands of people who will flock to central London to see the coronation. Um, but if you look at the country also at large, polls show that the majority of people are sort of meh about the coronation. They're not that interested. London, the morning of Tuesday, June the 2nd, the morning of Coronation Day. It's just a very different time. The last time we had a coronation was in 1953 for Queen Elizabeth II. Into Trafalgar Square ride men of the household cavalry, by tradition the guardians of Her Majesty throughout her reign. Through Admiralty Arch comes the coach to a roar of welcome from the waiting thousands. So in 1953, Britain was just coming out of the war. You had Elizabeth, who was 27, almost like this fairy tale princess and the symbol of rejuvenation. The ceremonies you have seen today are ancient, and some of their origins are veiled in the mists of the past. But their spirit and their meaning shine through the ages, never perhaps more brightly than now. I have insincerity. We're just not in that place right now at all. I mean, the, the country is set to crown its oldest ever monarch. Charles is 74. The UK has just endured this period of political upheaval. You know, we had three prime ministers last year. Brits are struggling with the cost of living crisis. And, you know, maybe there's some kind of resetting of the dial with this coronation. I don't know, but it does feel like a very, very different time. And to be fair to the palace, I, I think they're sort of aware of some of those optics. And so, you know, they want to project the glitz and the glam, but at the same time, they're aware that Charles's subjects are struggling to pay 
their food and energy bills and coping with double-digit inflation. So I think there's a very interesting tightrope that they have to walk. I think it's a very interesting challenge for the royal family. What exactly will the coronation look like? What is the public going to be watching? And what is the coronation? Like, what is the, the significance of this? I mean, the coronations have been going on for centuries, and it's a way for monarchs to assert their power. There's anointing, there's oath-taking, there's crowning. It's a deeply religious ceremony. And, you know, it's really the formal confirmation of the king as head of state, uh, but also a head of the Church of England. And so it's intended to show that the king's authority was derived from God. But beyond all that, I also, I just think it's the theater of monarchy at its best. I think the bigger question I have here is, how much is all of this going to cost on Saturday, uh, the coronation? I mean, it's a really good question. And the answer is, we don't know. <laughs> so I did call the palace and I asked them, how much is this going to cost? And they said that they will give us a figure. Well, actually, they said the government will give us a figure, but that will be published sometime after the coronation. We know it will be sort of tens of millions. And the palace says that, you know, the government will pick up that town because this is a state event. And that's kind of interesting because it's different from a royal wedding where much of that cost is picked up by the royals themselves, although not the security, which is picked up by the government. And are taxpayers okay with how much this event is going to cost? People are not okay with it. And I think it's it's really, really interesting because Brits on the whole aren't currently too, too bothered about royal wealth. But what Brits do get upset about are specific things related to royal wealth, things like the cost of the coronation and the fact that taxpayer dollars are being used to pay for this. Many people say, hey, wait a minute. Like, okay, you're going to do a coronation, but why do we have to pay for this? While we struggle to heat our homes, we have to pay for your parade. The taxpayer pays $100 million for you. And what for? Not my king. And I think the royals have to, you know, walk a very fine line here, especially in the current environment where there is a cost of living crisis and the coronation is going to cost tens of millions of dollars. Um, you know, they, they are aware of those optics. And to be fair, they keep trying to project that this is a slimmed down coronation. You know, they're not going to commission new crowns and robes. They will reuse or modify crowns or resize existing robes. They want to project all this pageantry and glitz and glam, but at the same time, people are upset about the fact that taxpayer dollars are paying for this and we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And the royals don't want to be out of step with the British public who are struggling with double-digit inflation. So I think there's, there's just a really interesting tension there. After the break, what we do know about where the royal family's wealth comes from and how the monarchy defends itself in 2023. We'll be right back. Carla, let's put the coronation aside for a moment and just dig into the fact we don't know how much money the royals actually have. 
But what what do we know about where their wealth does come from? What what do they own? What can you tell us about the money that they have and the wealth they have? So yes, the world of real finance is shrouded in fog. And like someone told me that like investigating the CIA would be way easier. But my colleague, Mary Jordan and I, we did take a deep dive into this world. I think it can be helpful to think of royal wealth as sort of three different buckets of money. The first bucket being personal wealth. These are things that he could sell if he wanted to. So King Charles owns Balmoral. That's the castle in Scotland where the queen died. He owns that. He can sell that. In the second bucket, we have duchies. So there are two duchies. The biggest one is called the Duchy of Cornwall, and this is always owned by the Duke of Cornwall. Now, the Duke of Cornwall changes. It's currently Prince William. For the 70 years before that, the Duchy of Cornwall was owned by Charles. It's a massive property portfolio. It's worth over a billion dollars. It's a mix of both like rural and urban properties and investments. Now, it's a funny kind of ownership because he can't sell these assets, but he can take an income from it. And for the last 10 years, that's been about 20 million pounds a year. And the heir to the throne can spend it however he wants. There's something called the Duchy of Lancaster. It's a similar mega real estate property portfolio. So in the last bucket of money, we have the taxpayer-funded sovereign grant. And this is money from the taxpayer. And the taxpayers pay, last year it was 86 million pounds. It's actually linked to something called the Crown Estate. The Crown Estate is this collection of land holdings. It dates back to the 11th century. Today, it's worth about $19 billion. And the Crown Estate includes things like London's Regent Street. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a major shopping street. All of the profits from that go to the treasury or the public coffers, the state treasury. The profits from the Crown Estate are linked to a funding formula. So 25% of the profits from the Crown Estate are given to the royal family in the form of something called a sovereign grant, and that's that taxpayer pot of money. So basically what you're saying is there is all of these properties that are, it's making money for the government, um, and that the royal family gets a cut of that money. Exactly. They, they benefit financially from the Crown Estate, and they benefit very directly from these other duchies because they get an annual salary or an annual income of around $25 million. You know, Carla, I also wonder how much of this money, if we take like a bigger picture look, comes from, you know, relics of ancient customs or even colonialism or, you know, like try- <laughs> things that were basically like, oh, we just took this land or took this money or took these things and now we're profiting off of it for generations. Yeah, I think, I mean, these these estates date back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um in the past, there's been big debates over whether or not the royals should even own them. There's certainly been a big debate. I mean, I think there's another debate here, too, that is saying, well, okay, wait a minute. How how did the royal family historically make money? And, you know, has are there links to the slave trade? I mean, there absolutely are links to the slave trade. And you have King Charles coming out a few weeks ago saying that he was supporting research into this area to look deeper at 
royal links to the slave trade. That is certainly something that's being discussed here. In an era where people are calling for reparations, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, the royal families aren't going there, but they are acknowledging that that certainly people are talking about, hey, wait a minute, where, where did this money come from? Are there links to the slave trade? You know, absolutely, yes. Carla, you've already talked a little bit about the criticisms of the royal family having all this wealth, I I guess specifically about the coronation, you know, how much money is going to be spent on it. And I wonder what their defense of this is, because, you know, it seems like the monarchy at this point is kind of an ornamental element of British society. They don't actually have, you know, they're not ruling the British Empire the way they did 100 years ago. Um, What is their argument or defense as to why these sorts of ceremonies and and having this much money is still uh, valuable and important. You're right. The British monarch doesn't have any political power. Britain is a constitutional monarchy. You know, the king has constitutional obligations, like he formally appoints ministers, he opens parliament, he signs state papers, he meets with the prime minister once a week for an audience uh, every Wednesday evening. I guess the supporters of the royal family would say that they are good for trade, they're good for tourism, that they are a unifying force for the country. And so while their support has been diminishing in recent years, they're still a surprisingly popular institution Um, I mean, there's a really stark generational divide where you have older people who are overwhelmingly in favor of the royal family and younger people who are questioning the royal family. So I think that's a very, that's something that the royals should be very concerned about. Carla, I wonder, given that times are changing (laughs) when it comes to the public's perception of the monarchy, and even though there's still broad support for them, there is this feeling around the coronation— do you think that this will be the last coronation that will be this opulent? Or do you think this tradition and the lifestyle of the royal family will evolve over time? Or is this something that will always remain remain sort of the constant in Britain? Yeah, I think that, that, you know, King Charles may not be given the same kind of pass that his mother got. I mean, so his mother was famously thrifty, and she had a reputation for thrift that worked really well for her. And so people like to share stories about how she, you know, stored her cereal in Tupperware and that she would walk around the palace and and turn off the lights and all sorts of tiny little anecdotes that showed how she was quite frugal. At the same time, she had a racehorse habit. You know, the staff salaries didn't go down under her reign. um, And I think that Charles, he's definitely coming across as someone who is aware of these optics. And there's been talk forever that he will slim down the monarchy. And we sort of scratch our heads and think, what does that mean? Does that mean fewer working royals? You know, the royal family has, in in recent months and years, slimmed down by itself. Will he do any more slimming down of the royal family? I don't know. I I, I just think it'll be interesting space to watch. Do you know that the royal family has been around for a thousand years because they're pretty good at adapting and changing. So I do wonder, you know, at the next coronation, whenever that might be, will it look different? I think that on the one hand, they love these traditions. They love that they bring out a 12th century spoon and they love the golden carriages. At the same time, if that just begins to seem 
ostentatious and doesn't reflect the times we're in, you could see some changes. But the Brits just love their pomp and their pageantry. But like, could it be adapted and tweaked in the future? Absolutely. And the royals are very keen to say that they have adapted this one and tweaked this one. I mean, I'm not seeing a lot of like, I'm still seeing a lot of bling. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. But if there was a big outcry over it, I think the royals, I think they're aware of optics and they may adapt if needed in the future. It's like this idea of being royalty, and if you don't have all the bling, then then how can you still be royal? But adapting to survive, that's, that's super fascinating. Well, thanks, Carla. Have fun at the party. <laughs> yeah, I, I just like to say I've, I am not invited to the coronation, but I will be, I will be with the hoi polloi out on the streets on Saturday morning. But yes, thank you. Carla Adam is a London correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. If you love our show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Lucy Perkins, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Gabe O'Connor, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Listener.